Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. I'm so thrilled that you joined us this week. I think you're really going to love this interview. Jasmine will be speaking with Michelle Rojas Soto, and she is the managing director at Encompass. And the interview was actually recorded at the Farmed Animal Conference eSummit, which happened a while back, not too long ago. Uh, It was put on by Animal Place, and I think in coordination with some others. And one of the presentations there was a conversation between Michelle and Jasmine about equity, or sadly, sometimes the lack thereof within the animal rights movement. It's a great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And this was produced, this segment and the entire FACES conference was produced by the Plant-Based Network, which is a really cool app that you can get for your streaming device. Uh, So you could watch a totally vegan TV network. It's super cool. And I was really, really moved by my conversation with Michelle. And so it's been on my mind. And I finally said, can we just put it on the Arhan House podcast? And uh, everyone gave their permission. So I'm excited to share that with you. And uh, the bonus segment this week is, is a little bit different than normal. I know I've been talking about my upcoming book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan for quite a while now, but it is finally just about here. It comes out on December 15th and that's next week. Actually, that's kind of this week. And so our bonus this week for Flock members will be an excerpt from the audiobook that I was able to record. As always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on Tuesday, the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can swing it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Maybe you already know this, but between now and the end of the year, which is just in a few weeks, thank God, we are actually having all donations tripled thanks to some generous donors. Every dollar you donate counts as three. And December is the biggest time for us to fundraise we raise the majority of our yearly budget in December. So if you're able to join the flock, and I hope you are, then know that this is not only the best time of the year, but the best time in all of the nearly 11 years, because this is the first time we've had such a bang up type of end of year incentive tripled. Why did you say that the new year is only a few weeks away? Thank God. Because I'm ready for 2020 to be over. All right. I thought that was maybe it. I feel like everyone is saying this and I'm a little nervous that on January 1st, everybody will think everything will be different. And uh, I'm sorry to be the, the harbinger of doom, but it ain't going to be that different. I know, but I, I'm it'll like, be closer, I, hopefully. I'm a sentimentalist and I believe like in the power of arbitrary time markers. So that's why I love birthdays. That's why I love the uh, signifier of end of year. And so, yes, I think you are right. What I'm saying is totally irrational and I stand by it. All right. <laughs> That's not the first time. <laughs> well, anyway, it is a tough time, as we all know. We we have a pandemic going on, if you haven't heard. And so we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls still. That's Those are at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And sometimes we have guests. Sometimes we just have a chat. We had a great chat the last time about all of the stuff that everybody on the phone call is doing. And I was so intimidated. Activist-wise, yeah. Yeah, activist-wise, not every single thing they're doing. (laughs) I got up, I brushed my... No. Uh, And like, there are amazing people out there. Thank you all. You're doing amazing work. And and some of it is hard to do right now. Like uh, somebody was talking about putting on potlucks. 
tough thing to do, but everybody seems to be coming up with alternatives. And it was, it was, I found it very inspiring. So if you're a member of the flock, you can always check out the flock Facebook group for updates about those calls and when they're going to occur. And you can always write to us, of course, at info at our Yeah, I, at the end of everyone going around uh, sort of popcorn style and saying what they were doing to change the world for animals. I just, Popcorn style? Is that not what it was? Well, I called on everyone. I guess it wasn't popcorn. You don't know what popcorn style is? No, I don't know what popcorn style is. Now you want popcorn, I bet. Yeah, kind of. No, I, it means that you like this person goes and then that person goes and this person. It's like pop, 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 your popcorn style. That's anyway. Okay. All right. Uh, in any Weird. case, afterwards, I read the list of like the bullet points that I had written down of what people were doing. And it was like illustrating a book uh, for children about animal rights and uh, starting writing a book, a writing, memoir. writing a memoir, um, writing a column for my local magazine, uh, my local newspaper about uh, about the animal rights uh, status in my community. And, and I don't even remember that one. Yeah, th that was one of um, Soledad's, of course. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. So uh, anyway, in any case, I, we were then I got to you and you were like, I'm not worthy, which, you know, of course you are. But the point is that if anyone is looking for new ways to change the world for animals, like the reason we even started our hen house in the first place was it, it is is because we believe that there is no one right way into changing the world for animals, as is evident from last week's Flock Friday call, because Everyone, we had several countries on that call and everyone was doing different things. And it's super inspiring to think about it. It was also a good way of my kind of uh, decompressing and focusing on positivity because that day I, I think I was like running in the house for starting the Flock Friday. I had just gotten back from taking one of my little dogs to the doggy cardiologist and you know, she's, you know, she's fine while well, she is like heart, heart disease, but she's an elderly chihuahua, yes. elderly chihuahua. I have two. Well, I have three, but I have two of them have heart disease. It's very common in these little dogs. And in any case, like, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but the following day, I, you don't want to bore us with all the details. I want to bore you with the details. I'll tell you the full story later. <laughs> Actually, who am I kidding? You already know the full story. You heard it like on text, on the phone and in person. But for those of us listening, I just want to say that the next day, the doggy cardiologist called me to say, Birdie's uh, blood work came back and it's amazing. And I was like, great. And he goes, by the way, vegan diets are very dangerous for dogs, <laughs> as is evidenced by her perfect blood work. And I said, huh, I beg to differ. And he said, well, only in like the last few years has there been some studies about grain-free diets. I said, she isn't grain-free. He said, well, it was, uh, you know, through the proteins that are often found in grain-free diets, which are also found in what we call boutique diets or vegan diets. Like, what is he even talking about? Like, like this may be this and it may be that and who knows? Like, this is, it, it already sounds stupid. And, and he also was saying that it is, that he's not a nutritionist, but... He, he frequently recommends that people take their dogs off of vegan diets. And I was like, but I mean, I don't know what study you're talking about. I later found out it was a study that was funded by like one of the biggest uh, meat based dog foods in, in the in the country, of course. So and it's because there's such a higher demand than ever these days for vegan dog food because it's healthy. And and he said, you know, there's a particular type of heart disease, not birdies, heart disease, but a particular type of heart disease in dogs that can be linked back to that. 
And I said, but not birdies. And he said, no, not birdies. That's like a different type of heart disease. And I said, I really hope that you can hold space for the fact that a plant-based diet can be extremely healthy for dogs. They are not obligate carnivores. Cats are another story. It can be a conundrum. Oh, let's not get into cats. Not getting into it. But the point is that, you know, it. I said, do you know what happens? By the way, I was standing in like my bathroom wearing a towel that I was like in the shower when the phone rang. So it just this entire conversation is like me in a towel, like right, hair has shampoo. OK, here. so I said, do you do you understand what happens to like factory farmed animals that were, you're then recommending be fed to dogs? And he was like, believe me, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. And I bet I bet he's a purchaser. I it, it, it I know that I'm saying the most obvious thing right now that like so many of us go through. And I, I don't know why this got me so Well, because angry. it gets all of us every time it happens. I mean, it, it's just bad, especially from veterinarians, you know, who are supposed to care about animals. And we all know, like, it's pretty selective for most of them. And I even said at one point, I'm glad that your assistant did a five minute Google search to look up this study. But I've been working in this field for 15 years and I'm happy to send you some other studies if you want. And I know that I was then like, the you know, because I this is in upstate New York. He knows that I've moved from L.A. recently. I know he had this idea of who I was based on what I was saying. But like it just it made me. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's crazy making. Mm -hmm. And did you uh, you mentioned Rose, right? Who's I mean, admittedly, Rose is not the picture of health right now because she's she's very, very frail. But she's very, very old. And she has been the picture of health for most of her her long vegan life. Right. And I, we can all tell stories like that. And, you know, these people just mm-hmm. have... To, well, the thing that really drives me crazy is this, if they know... The thing I just said, if, so I'm going to say it again, because why not? Mm-hmm. It's our podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can say it as many times as I want. And, uh, like, if they actually do understand that factory farming is a problem, then then are they vegan? I bet they're not. And if they don't understand that factory farming is a problem, why are we even talking to them? Well, thankfully, the next day, which was last Saturday, everything turned around for me. I like got the stick out of my ass and I was so blown away and bowled over by this conference that I was moderating a panel at virtually the Vegan Women's Summit. I think they had like a thousand people registered from all over the world And it was basically vegan entrepreneurs who are women um, or women identified people who are were starting different vegan businesses on every single level you can imagine from like plant based meats to beauty. In fact, that was what I was moderating a panel on, like clean, cruelty free beauty with Daniela Monet and Tia Blanco. Tia, of course, is a 23 year old uh, surfing sensation, but she also has a, a beauty company with her sister and Anyway, I logged on, like, as they said, log on a half hour before and I'm in the virtual backstage area and they had like these lightning rounds of speakers. And in that half hour, when I was just sitting there uh, waiting to go on, I think five countries were represented by lightning fast speakers who were talking about their vegan products and their vegan businesses. Honestly, it blew my mind. If you have the opportunity to get on their mailing list for the Vegan Women's Summit, you're going to want to join this next year. It was phenomenal. Were there a lot of ethically, was it mostly health or or trendy or ethics? 
I think a lot of these women are starting the businesses from an ethical baseline. I think that they see opportunities for entrepreneurship, but I think most of them are motivated by either a better planet or, you know, in some of the cases that I saw animal rights concerns, but it kind of was like taking a totally different shape than, for example, the animal rights conference of yesteryear, um, where it was very much like grassroots driven. But this was this was really coming from a place of like, how do we take over the world with with vegan business opportunities, especially geared toward women and gender nonconforming individuals? It was so cool. I also they had a shark tank element to it. A bunch of entrepreneurs were able to like pitch their ideas and they entered this like contest. And I think three of them went in front of publicly in front of a panel of of judges who were investors and one of them won like $50,000. So I mean, that's awesome, right? I am all for people winning money and I'm all for people making money too if they're doing it ethically. Like, well, the whole subject of capitalism is a little beyond this. I won't get into that. But if we're going to have this system, I want to see the right people make. I was in a conversation the other day and somebody it was talking about funding research and funding researchers who were doing uh, this kind of research into into new ways of replacing the food system. Mm-hmm. And somebody made the comment that, uh, you know, a lot of these people then, you know, we're, we'd fund this. And then a lot of these people are going to then leave the research institute and go off and start companies or work for big companies. So I was like, well, great. Like, why would that be a bad thing? Like, if somebody's going to make it money, I want it to be vegans who are doing good work. Yeah. It's, you know, that same day, I, I had a busy day. I spoke at a conference for the for the Outshine Film Festival on Saturday, I mean, in Florida. And it was on Saturday in Florida, uh, but it was virtual. And I had my giant, fabulous vegan sign behind me. And so the whole talk, when they got to me to ask me about this film I was in called The Bra Mitzvah, wound up being about veganism and how we pivoted the the everything in the film to be vegan because there were so many vegans on set. Like the food was catered by the vegan Jewish deli, Morton Betty's. And, and the guy who ran the film festival, he goes, oh, only in L.A. And I was like, no, no, there's a vegan Jewish deli in Chicago and in New York. And it was like, it was funny because I was able to work that in. And the guy was like, OK, I'm going to order your book. So, you know, it was much more positive than not. Um, so this is all making me think of entrepreneurship and the Our Hen House Supports Vegan Business Program. So let's talk about some of the vegan businesses. To well, actually, our actually, our first one isn't really a business, but it is a great opportunity for everyone to learn. And I, I had mentioned earlier in the intro that today's interview was recorded at the Faces Summit, which was put on, on, on by Animal Place earlier this year. And you were a speaker, Jasmine. So before we get to uh, to the quote unquote product here. Tell us a little bit about the summit. So this was uh, several months ago, maybe maybe in the summer, I'm going to say. And it was a several day long conference where myself and I think maybe four or five other interviewers, all we all took four people each and interviewed them. So one of the people I interviewed was Michelle, who's going to be you're going to hear that interview in a moment. But uh, we, we were able to talk about like what the future of uh, of farmed animals, it means in terms of like the exploitation of them and the liberation of them and how we achieve a better world. And uh, so this was aired live on the plant-based network, which is just, like I said, very cool. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And I just um, am always so intrigued by how uh, people are reacting to COVID and creating new opportunities for connection. 
So it was great to have this sort of like further education, which is something that came up recently on a flock call. Like, how can we sign up for more workshops and how can we educate ourselves a little bit more about what those things that we're passionate about, especially in our realm, changing the world for animals. I certainly hope that our hen house is doing that for those of you listening, but it was a really cool summit. Yeah, it sounds like it was amazing. And I did catch a couple of the interviews at the time, but I certainly didn't get all of them. And I imagine a bunch of you are are the same or else you didn't pick up on it at all. And once you listen to today's interview, you are probably going to want to hear more. And happily, that is, has become entirely possible. So here's how it works. You go to Face Summit. And oddly, there's only one S. So it's F-A-C-E-S-U-M-M-I-T dot org. You can find out more about the topics and the speakers. And you can purchase what they call the Summit Pack. And you'll receive access, which will last forever or actually only as long as you live. <laughs> that's prob- wow. That's probably long enough <laughs> to all 20 talks. Um, and y- you can check out who spoke. So uh, I'm sure you're going to be really interested. I think you can actually get three of them for free and then you, you can purchase this and get the rest of them. And there were experts. And as a bonus, you can get some additional perks from some of the speakers, such as eBooks and, and other things. So That is a really good, if you want to catch up with everything that's going on in the farm animal movement, that is the way to do it. Also, we got a suggestion for a vegan business from flock member Anne Corinne. Do you think I'm saying that right? I would have said Corinne, but I did look it up. I'm not sure. Okay. But we did our best. (laughs) Sorry, Anne. But Anne is in the Netherlands, which sounds really amazing right about now. It is a Dutch company with plans to expand to the US. And uh, at the moment, the website is in Dutch and my Dutch is (laughs) non-existent. But the pictures are going to make you want to buy everything. They have clothes and cosmetics and housewares. So if you're in the Netherlands or read Dutch or just want to get excited about what they're going to do to expand, check out shoplikeyougiveadam.nl. And that looks super cool. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, you have to check out that website. I know I, I, know I did this and, <laughs> and, and you haven't looked well, at it yet. Like, Their I, stuff is so good. I was laughing because you wrote that part of our, sh- our, our script here and you, you wrote... My Dutch is non-existent for me to say. It was funny. Anyway. Well, am I wrong? No. Are you actually more fluent in Dutch than I had imagined? I, no, I'm not, not even remotely. Though I speak some Yiddish. I can curse in Yiddish. I don't think that really helps. I don't think they did a lot of Yiddish cursing on this website. <laughs> Though I can't be sure. I, I really can't be sure. Isn't it odd how the name of the country is the Netherlands and, and the name of the language is Dutch? Mm. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just ruminating here. Let's make me stop. Stop, Marianne. Stop, Marianne. And let's do the interview because this is a really cool interview. Michelle Rojas Soto is the managing director at Encompass. She has over 18 years of leadership experience in nonprofit and social enterprise work, always focused on equity, systemic change, and community building. She's been an advocate for racial justice, women's rights, disability rights, and LGBTQ plus rights. Among other roles, she was a founding member of Gender Equity in Animal Rights, where she launched the Amplify Career Sponsorship Program for women and gender nonconforming people. And she will be joining Jasmine for this fabulous interview right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Brand new from Hachette in December 2020. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. 
After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way. And well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you wanna lift a car over your head, sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold or go to jasminesinger.com slash fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. My guest today is somebody who you might not have heard of yet, but she's about to be one of your very favorite people. She's one of mine. I'm so excited to welcome Michelle Rojas Soto to Faces Today. Michelle Rojas Soto is the managing director of Encompass, which works to build a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive animal protection movement, as well as build the impact of organizations and individual advocates. Michelle has nearly 20 years of leadership experience in nonprofit and social enterprise work, primarily focused on the interconnectedness of issues. Prior to joining Encompass, Michelle was Managing Director of Better Eating International, disseminating progressive vegan education on a massive scale through digital media. She is also a founding member of Gender Equity in Animal Rights. Aside from her work in animal protection, she is committed to fighting prejudice and hate and apathy on all fronts. And I know this about her because I've had the great privilege of working with Michelle recently, and she is really a force like none other. She's been an advocate for disability rights, racial justice, women's rights, and LGBTQ plus rights. She has served on the board of directors for Pearls of Africa Children's Home in Uganda and was co-organizer for LA Tech for Good. She has a master's in biology from Caltech and a master's in business administration from USC. Michelle, like myself, is joining us today from Los Angeles, California. Welcome to Faces, Michelle. Thank you for that warm welcome, Jasmine. I appreciate it. Well, I'm a big fan of yours, and I've never gotten to interview you today, so this is a really fun experience for me as well, and a real honor to be on this end of it. I know that the participants in the FACES conference are going to get such a lot from all of the incredible insights that you bring to the animal rights movement and beyond. So actually, I don't know this about you. I'd love to start with your vegan journey. What was the impetus for your decision? Thank you for asking. My vegan journey started about 10 years ago. My sister-in-law was vegan at the time and she kept telling us about, we should do it with her. And my husband and I didn't take her seriously uh, for a couple of years. Eight years ago, almost nine years now, we watched Forks Over Knife on a Sunday night and we were in the middle of watching the documentary. I left to go food shopping and I came back with a cart full of our regular stuff, which was a lot of cheddar cheese, yogurt, eggs, and whatnot. And when I came back from shopping, my husband said, you have to watch this. 
and don't move from here. So I did. And as soon as we finished the documentary, we looked at each other and we said, okay, well, we're, we're not going to throw away that food because we can't afford it, but we really need to make some big changes. So I ate all the cheese, said goodbye to it. It was my comfort food and didn't look back. And we switched our diet overnight. I didn't know what to cook and what to feed my kids, but I got some books from the library and learned it quickly. And after switching to a vegan diet, then I got interested in the ethical aspects of veganism. And I started reading books about that. And from then on, then the commitment became a lifelong commitment. And here I am. Wow, that's so cool. And such a good reminder to people that people can come into veganism by way of health. You know, I think uh, oftentimes it can be like a bit frustrating for some vegans to hear that someone is just coming to our movement because they care about their own health. But I have heard time and time again of someone who who went vegan for health and then immediately realized that it is the only ethical way forward. And so I'm so happy that here we are now and that you had that journey. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had a long career in healthcare before joining all of us in the farmed animal protection movement. So what brought that about and how did, how did that pivot to working with Encompass? My career has spanned different areas. Uh, so I started in college with this really clear goal of becoming a full-time professor at a university. And I worked in a biology lab since my first year in college and then pursued graduate school thinking that I would pursue a PhD and become a researcher for the rest of my life. But when I got to graduate school, there was such, I felt such a strong disconnect between research in the lab and real suffering out in the world around me. And I did not have the patience to work a lifetime to find out if I had done something that helped someone else. And I just couldn't find that motivation inside me anymore. So I left uh, graduate school with no plan. I found a job doing database work in um, cancer research nonprofit. Uh, those were clinical trials for children with cancer. And I learned quite a bit and I started to understand better what motivates me and how I wanted to engage in the world. From then on, I went to business school and after business school, I, I still wanted to continue that engagement in nonprofit work. And I also thought a social enterprise was an untapped area, especially back then uh, for realizing social change. So everything I've done since school has been connecting um, different areas, different stakeholders from the for-profit companies to the nonprofits to the social and public sectors. And I think when we realize the potential for those connections, that's when we're going to see the most progress in the 21st century. I think the time for um, isolated solution finding is over, if, if there ever was one. Before joining Better Eating, I was working at Children's Hospital in the disability rights space. And uh, Better Eating reached out to me. They had, found, they had found me on LinkedIn 
and wanted to connect because of my managerial skills and bringing me into the movement. Up to that point, I was already vegan, but I never considered the movement because what I saw from social media was quite jarring and, um, how should I say this, somewhat confrontational and um, not supportive. And it just didn't feel like the kind of professional environment that I wanted to be in. But uh, the folks at Better Eating, including Ariana, who was our chair uh, at the board of directors at that organization, showed me that it is possible to build uh, what we imagine. Mm. And I decided to commit to that, to bring what I can into the movement, find people who see things similarly, and build together. And that's what motivates me to continue to do this work. That's so interesting to hear from like uh, the perspective that from the outside it had seemed just really confrontational and not necessarily inviting. Is that what your experience was once you started working in this in this field? To some extent, I definitely have modulated my understanding of the movement after being in it for four or five years. And that's because I've reached out to, and, and other folks have reached out to me, uh, the folks that have a big focus on collaboration and lifting each other up. Uh, part of it, I think that, you know, that confrontation that I've found from the outside is definitely real. But I think also part of it is the social media culture of vitriol and not really using our emotional intelligence. So I've, I've learned to understand that, you know, that's, Part of how we're moving as a society. But again, I try to focus on what agency I have to live according to my values, including uh, my workplace ethic and how I want to treat and be treated by my colleagues. Well, I see that that is an issue that is happening. It's coming up for a lot of people, as I think the animal rights movement and the farm to animal protection movement more specifically is starting to shift. And I, I've been in the farm animal protection movement for like 17 years and I see big, big changes happening right now. And that's partly because of the work of Encompass, which, you know, is just a breath of fresh air. So I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your work with Encompass. We see, unfortunately, very few faces of color representing the farm to animal movement. And Encompass surveyed the 11 largest farm to animal protection organizations and found only 38 of 330 employees identify as people of the global majority. That's about 11% versus 38% of the general U.S. population. And I know that Encompass works on, on, on two fronts, both on the organizational mm -hmm. side with organizational leadership to advance DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as with individuals to advance their own professional life in the animal rights movement. So let's start with the second of these. Encompass offers training and mentorship and other resources to help people strengthen their skills and advance in, in the animal rights movement in their careers. Can you talk a little bit about the type of work you do with individuals and the need for this brand of work? Certainly. 
The thing that we hear most often from people of color working in the movement is that they feel isolated, unsupported, and at the verge of quitting at any given moment. When Ariennish started Encompass, she interviewed everyone that she could to try to get a sense of what would be helpful. And she even she interviewed me when I was a better eating as well. The thing that we all said is we needed that to build that sense of community and to find ways to enhance our careers progressively. Many folks of color get hired as community outreach coordinators, and there's very little advancement potential. So we took those things into account, and a year ago, last week, it's been a, you know, yeah, we just reached a year in which we launched the Global Majority Caucus. We originally conceived it as a US-based program, and we called it the People of Color Caucus. But we, because people of color is a term we use in the United States to refer to non-white people. As soon as we launched it, though, we heard from people non-white in other parts of the world reaching out and asking if they too could join because there was nothing like it in their part of the world. But people of color is not a term that resonates anywhere else. And so we've reimagined that, we learned from that experience and we rebranded as people of the global majority caucus. Through the caucus, we offer monthly sessions. Some are strictly community building for people to share, get to know one another. We also offer professional support, introducing topics led by experts such as media savvy, um, international advocacy, et cetera. The, the topics vary significantly based on the interests of the group because they let us know what they're looking for and also the expertise that the group itself has that can contribute to like I said earlier, propping each other up. Before the end of the year, we're planning to launch a talent database for advocates of the global majority to list their, their talents, their expertise, and their interests. And it could be a range of things from speaking engagements at vegan events to board service, leadership positions, et cetera. We want to create a space where people of the global majority are celebrated, sought out, and recognized for the incredible talents that they bring and the perspectives that so far have not had a, an opportunity to shine proportionately in the animal space. Yeah, that's, that's so exciting about the talent data. Base. That's the first time I'm hearing about that. Wow, that is desperately needed. And I, I know that a lot of the work that you're doing is something that is needed, which includes the work you do with organizations. And I know that when Encompass works with organizations and with the leadership at these organizations to improve, you're focusing on a number of areas. And number one is probably to communicate that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Clearly, this lack of equity and diversity affects the internal culture of those specific organizations, but how does it affect the movement beyond that? You tend to be clear that making changes within these organizations is not just a matter of doing the right thing, but it, it increases the movement's effectiveness. 
So I wonder if you could speak to that and to the importance of working uh, within organizations for both the sake of the organizations as well as for the overall animal rights movement. Well, at the beginning, you said that the lack of diversity impacts the culture of the organization. I think that's true to some extent, but I think more often the culture of the organization has an impact on diversity or the lack thereof. And so that's one first example in which I can give you that having racial equity contributes to the work. Without a focus on racial equity, we don't attract talent and talent is def desperately needed to create a global movement. Here is something that, that helps me focus in my work. When we are trying to make the case for racial equity and animal protection, we often hear, why, why does it even matter who's in the room when we're making decisions? For those of us who need that kind of argument, in order to engage, I offer this. In every other human enterprise that we've looked at, racial equity, diversity, and inclusion and in decision-making has been shown to have a positive impact. That includes the for-profit sector. It includes politics and the public sector. We definitely care who is our, who's, who's leading us in our cities, our states, our countries. And it's also been shown to be the case in other social uh, nonprofit spaces, such as the environmental protection space. And so if we assume that the same human dynamics that are at play in all of those sectors are also at play in animal protection, we can make a straight line between the need for diversity of thought and the need for cultivating that in the animal protection space. Animal protection is a worldwide problem. And so far, we've just scraped the, the tip of the iceberg here in terms of being effective. Vegans hover at about 2% of the population. It's been stagnant there for a very long time. And so I think we'll continue to see marginal incremental changes unless we cultivate our potential for radical transformation. We, we need to see that in the United States and we need to see that in other countries as well. I think it's important for us to also consider that a large part of the institutional animal advocacy space has been cultivated inside the United States and geopolitics is shifting dramatically. The United States place in the world has already shifted dramatically. Inside of the United States, we might not yet feel that, uh, but I still consider myself as somebody who has a foot outside of the US because I am Puerto Rican, grew up there until I finished college. And I, I've traveled and I see, I, I see and I look to see how other people perceive uh, US citizens. And the tides have changed, I think, we need to really consider how we listen more and, and follow instead of always trying to dictate how things are done. We miss a lot of opportunities for innovation when we think we already know the answers. So as we consider racial equity in our space, the biggest 
motivator is that when we achieve that racial equity, we will be talking to everyone about veganism, not just people that look and live like us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I just want to replay that over and over again. So well said, so true, and so necessary. And this feels like a good time to talk about the Institute that Encompass offers. And the, the, the Encompass Institute is something I'll let you chat about, but I do want to say that I attended the first one in, which was earlier this year, I think in March. Was it March? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was right at the beginning of, of COVID. And so it like immediately had to pivot to be online. And I found it a very, very powerful experience. So can you talk briefly about the Encompass Institute? Because I know that there's another one coming up in October. Sure. We created the Institute, we conceived of it in late 2019, because people want to bring racial equity into their organizations, but they find that they needed support with making the case for it inside of the organization. We feel very strongly at Encompass that systemic long-term change will only come from cultural transformation inside of our organization. And training does not achieve that. However, training helps us create that case for change uh, with other stakeholders that might not be on board yet. And so we offer the the DEI Institute as a two-day training. It was, like you said, conceived to be an in-person training, but we switched to an online platform because of the stay-at-home orders. At that time, we thought that in-person training was absolutely necessary for learning to occur. And we found, because of everyone who participated and the feedback you all provided, that we were able to deliver online training where people did achieve that reflective space and that introspection and that community that we were hoping to build originally in person. In the training, we focused on root causes of racism, both in our society as well as in the movement. And we spend a lot of time, especially on the second day, focused on how we can create change in the movement. What's our impetus for change personally and collectively? And that, that commitment is something that no one can choose for you. We have to choose it for ourselves. When we have the commitment, just like we had a commitment towards veganism, when we have a commitment for racial equity, then nothing can stop us. And so we dedicate an entire day for folks to brainstorm, reflect, and share ideas. And uh, hopefully, it certainly was the first time, become accountable to one another in what we wanted to do after we left that training. It was a very powerful experience. And I, you know, I guess this is also a a bit of a shameless plug, but from that, we started collaborating on an essay collection called Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Farmed Animal Protection. And 
we are we took basically the original cohort of of the people who attended the institute about 12 of us and we're putting together essays to hold ourselves accountable and to hold each other accountable there are a lot of white activists including myself who are participating in this i'm lucky to be the editor of the project and it is a collaboration between encompass and our hen house and sentient media so these essays are running on sentient media's website at sentientmedia.org and every two weeks we have a new piece coming out about the focusing on uh farm animal protection advocates and how they want to center dei work in their our animal advocacy so i do you have any feelings on on what you've been observing as these essays have been coming out because a lot of our reflections are coming from being trained by you mm -hmm. well i'll start by saying that i'm incredibly grateful to you jasmine because this was your idea i remember when you brought it up at the end of day one uh, in the training and the idea grew from there and i could see people's heads nodding uh, throughout day two uh, when they when they realize that this had potential and you've been stewarding this project ever since. Well, thank you. I In think reading, that personal narrative is, is a really important part of, of social change. And this is a way of, of using personal narrative as a means to social change by way of your incredible training. I agree. One thing that we focus on is that change is a journey as cliche as that sounds, and we probably won't get there in our lifetime. But that's no reason to stop trying. I think it can be very arrogant, frankly, to think that we will be the, the ones others are waiting for to, to get us there. Um, I, feel, I feel a lot of personal responsibility to contributing what I can, but the, the problems in front of us are huge, and it really does take the entire collaboration of, of our movement and, and of humanity to, to truly bring about change. So one thing I like about the essays is that it takes that personal experience and collectivizes it, and it exposes work in progress. We, we seem to be fascinated with successes and things that have worked. And that's the narrative that we, we seem to glorify in our, in our media. Uh, and people come out of nowhere with, you know, wonderful ideas. But in reality, that's not how it works. It's the things you try over and over, nothing works until finally something does. And so these essays are a celebration of that process of trying lots of different things, many times in anonymity, and seeing what, what works, uh, cultivating our own power, our resilience, our creativity, and uh, making connections through the process. And there's no substitute for that. And as someone who, who's been involved in social change and been an, an admirer of people who are good at social change, I firmly believe we're on the right track with this uh, because we're finally um, approaching this as a collective effort and not an individual one. And one of my hopes for this essay collection is that we it, it becomes a trilogy because I agree. Like th this 
this essay collection is in a lot of ways like uh, just a moment in time. And it would be amazing to follow the 12 writers throughout like the next 10 years, for example, of how we are putting this work in the center of our animal rights activism and our veganism and our advocacy and our careers and our personal lives and just tracing that and, and staying accountable to ourselves. And what's interesting in looking back at the Institute, and I do, I strongly encourage people to attend the one in October, like so strongly. But what is interesting to me is that we all were staring in our little Zoom boxes, like five minutes into the quarantine and the shelter at home orders. And the George Floyd murder hadn't even happened yet. And so mm -hmm. we were discussing this work and then like all of our lives changed because of this training. And then suddenly the murder of George Floyd and the protests and the uprisings happened all over the, the world really. And, and from that, we've seen a lot of white people awakening to systemic racism, such as police brutality. Is this awakening useful in building a more inclusive and diverse farmed animal protection movement? And, and how do we maximize it? I guess I'm just wondering what lessons organizations or individual activists can take from this moment. That's a great question. I do notice, like you said, white people awakening to police brutality as an example of other uh, racial discrepancies and racial violence in this country, possibly others. Whether or not that's useful is yet to be seen. I remain optimistic, but I don't take it for granted. I remember a couple of years ago having a conversation with white vegan activists and I had shared experiences I have personally had with police where I was not safe and in the presence of police. And the folks in the room looked at me with no understanding whatsoever of what I was talking about, no connection to it, no context that my experiences were not unique in any way, but they happen every day. And even George Floyd, um, George Floyd's death, absolutely tragic, period. And it's not the first, the, this is not a spike in police brutality. This has been happening nonstop for as long as we can think back. And many other people who have suffered at the hands of police, we don't know their names and we never will. It's, it's disingenuous to think that this particular man death has has changed something so quickly. I think the change is what comes after it stops being the media in the news cycle. Black people have been talking about this for a long time and it's been falling on deaf ears. So I do remain optimistic, but I certainly don't take it for granted that this is a turning point. One thing that I've noticed from the animal movement in response to Black Lives Matter's protests around the country is the desire to engage with Black Lives Matter. I think that could be good, but I also take it with a grain of salt. And let me tell you why. 
most of the organizations are responding by releasing statements that are public facing. And they say something to the effect of, we stand for Black Lives Matter, or we, we stand for racial equity. But the words, I stand for something, do not actually signify that I stand. I stand should be a descriptor for actions that I have already taken. If the first action taken is a statement saying that you stand, then that is disingenuous and it is performative. And so I, I wanna challenge folks who have organizational power to look at all the ways in which you can use your power to create change within your sphere of influence. I don't think this is the time to point fingers and expect someone else to do better. This is the time for each of us to think about how we could be contributing in ways that we haven't before. And that's what I want to, everyone to focus on, both individuals acting, representing themselves and nothing but themselves, and those who have institutional power and everyone in between. Yes, thank you. Really good reminders, really true. You're making me think of an article I was just reading in the New York Times about Catskill, New York, the town Catskill, and how there's just a lot of divisiveness in the community around Black Lives Matter. And, you know, it talked about the divisiveness and this and that. But one of the things that struck me about the article was that uh, a lot of the business owners on Main Street who are white were putting Black Lives Matter signs in their window. And somebody was quoted in the article as saying, there's a lot of Black Lives Matter signs in the windows, but there's no Black businesses on Main Street. And that really that really struck me because that to me is like an example of what you're saying. Like, how, how do we change things? And, and this seems like as good a time as any to address that. Though, as you're saying, we've needed to address it for a very long time. And certainly within the animal rights movement, it, it is not news that it is a very white-led movement. This is not something that we're all like awakening to right now. We've known this for a very long time. And one of the things that I personally have had to confront in my anti-racist work is why I've been involved in the animal rights movement for so long, and yet it still continues to be so predominantly white. And what has my role been in that? And I guess I'm wondering for, for you, for your perspective, Michelle, as far as the mainstream is concerned, there is this stereotype of vegans or, uh, or what a vegan looks and acts like. And one of those characteristics is that a, a vegan is, is white. And I'm wondering if that stereotype is a symptom or a cause of the pervasive whiteness in the animal rights movement and the vegan community. Mm -hmm. It's, an, it's interesting to examine that in our way in, to look at root causes that we have control over. Looking at the animal protection movement, there's the definition of the animal protection movement varies depending on who you ask. The institutional, what I call the institutional animal protection movement has uh, donor support, ample donor support has lots of media support and organizes their work uh, hierarchically like, in, like a regular uh, traditional organization. 
that movement is very white. There's other people who form part of the movement that have been at the fringes for a long time, creating organizations that don't meet those criteria. And many of them are led by people of the global majority. We don't usually think of them when we think of animal protection, and yet they're doing vital work connecting many different communities to the cause of animal rights. They don't have uh, layers and layers of support, including financial, um, media support, et cetera, for disseminating their work, but they do it every day. So when we look at stereotypes, I think of who has the microphone and what stories do they tell and continue to tell. They, they tell their own stories, but that says nothing of the stories that are not being told. And we, we tend to think that if something is not being told, it didn't exist in the first place. But I think we know better now, uh, examining all historical social movements, that truly it's, it's people who create change. It's not, it's not leaders and it's not institutions. They're, they're visible and they help us with the, with the storytelling, but that's not truly where the change comes from. So yes, there is definitely a stereotype in the institutional protection space that it is predominantly white. The messages that are put out there are created by white people to attract other white people, and it's sort of an echo chamber of sorts. But there's a lot happening outside of that that doesn't receive the spotlight, and that can also be then an area for us to rethink our assumptions and what's keeping us from seeing and being aware of all that other work that's happening simultaneously. Yeah, I like the way you put that with the institutional movement because it it's not like people who are in the animal rights movement get a club card you know it's not like we suddenly have joined something and that's also something that's bugged me in in the past especially with the work I do at our hen house where we are interviewing people who aren't necessarily like you know vegan famous <laughs> but are doing a whole lot of work to protect animals and have been in their communities for a very long time so I appreciate that that way of, of framing it. Uh, now, I, I know that what I'm about to ask you could be a whole hour a training session, so I don't expect you to deep dive like you would in, in the DEI Institute that Encompass puts together, but DEI is something that has reached more and more uh, mainstream vernacular of late, and I think that a lot of people just use the words diversity, equity, inclusion, or I think overseas it's opposite, right? It's equity, diversity, inclusion in England. Um, can you just tell us a little bit briefly uh, if, if it's at all possible about what these words mean and what the difference is between them? Of course. Equity, in particular racial equity, which is our focus at Encompass, <clears throat> is when everyone of every race has what they need to, to, to thrive. And put another way, when we have racial equity, race can no longer be used as a predictor of success in any arena, be it health, financial, educational outcomes. 
when those are not connected to race, we have achieved racial equity. In the time of our movement, we, we want to focus on who's represented, at what levels, what is asked of them, how are they seen, perceived, valued, what ideas do they contribute, and how seriously do, they, do we take those ideas. Diversity is what most people focus on, and that is more on the statistical side of things. You know, how many people do we have in an organization that meet certain demographic criteria, be it race, gender, uh, abilities, et cetera. It is a helpful marker if, if we use it as momentum building for doing deep dive work. But achieving cosmetic diversity does not lead to racial equity in and of itself. And like I mentioned earlier, many of the folks of color who are employed in the movement get recruited into community outreach positions with very little, if any, room for career advancement. Our movement in general does not offer a lot of career advancement uh, opportunities. I see people creating those for themselves, but we don't have institutional channels to cultivate that, like other for-profit spaces do, perhaps. And so we really need to ask ourselves, are we using uh, these talents to the best of our ability, or do we only care that they look physically that like this constituency that we're trying to reach and that we have been unsuccessful in reaching so far. That is also disingenuous. So you asked me about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Inclusion, the last of the three terms, means that the once people are in the room, their ideas are considered, they're valued, and they're, they're taken up. Mm -hmm. Those things so far, we've looked at them as sort of three different pillars of the equation, so to speak. But throughout the, the work of Encompass, we're finding that diversity and inclusion continue to be sort of the easier ways for people to try to address. And if we start with the easier, we never get to the hard. So we propose that we start with the hard and then the easy will follow by the momentum. Let's start with equity. Let's start with racial equity in particular because it is the hardest of all inequities to address. It's harder than gender, uh, harder than abilities. And have the conversations we need, opening up our vocabulary, building our literacy and our capacity for holding space for other experiences. And diversity will follow naturally, inclusion will follow as well. And again, the Institute goes into detail with this a lot. And there's a lot of collaborative work, even, even though it's virtual, there's a lot of collaborative work. So I encourage people to take a deeper dive into these issues. Now, I wouldn't say this is common in campaigns from large animal rights organizations, but there are certainly individual activists who condemn entire countries or cultures based on an issue of animal cruelty. 
you know, you're like scrolling on social media and suddenly you're treated to a racist diatribe because of the cat and dog meat trade in Asia or bullfighting in Spain. And we also saw this in our white supremacist uh, president using incredibly racist language around COVID-19. So how do you recommend challenging someone on this? Not, not the president, because he's probably not watching this, but a fellow activist. I don't recommend my fellow people of color advocates confront this person. We have plenty of work and that confronting someone like that can contribute to us being distracted from our main work and it drains our energy. So to folks who are listening, who are people of the global majority, I hope you absolve yourself of the need to uh, speak up every single time and focus your energies in ways in which you will have the most impact. In all likelihood, someone on the receiving end of your advocacy will dismiss it uh, because of who you are. For the white advocates who are listening, I think this could be an area of opportunity, but it's not where I would focus all of my efforts either. Take this as a, as a chance for you to practice your knowledge, your racial literacy, to hone it in, to practice persuasiveness, and try to connect with someone on an individual level. Um, in general, people don't respond well to prescriptions. You should this, you shouldn't that. People connect more with personal stories. And I think <laughs> when, I, when I read stories to my kids and there's someone, there, I mean, usually there's someone who's a bad guy in a story, you know, that's part of our storytelling for humans. I tell them, if that person had a muffin or a friend, that problem would probably go away. You know, no cape is going to, you know, superhero is going to help that. And I say it with a little bit of a twinkle in my eye, but I, I do mean it. You know, when people react in certain ways, I think they're trying to let us know something beyond the words that they're using. I also think that we've gotten very comfortable with pointing out what's wrong in someone else. And that helps detract all attention from what we could be doing to improve. So when we consider how other countries and people in other countries are being cruel towards dogs or cats or any other animals that we consider beloved in our society, let's just, you know, point that thumb back at us and what could we be doing for the animals that we happen to care nothing about, um, including uh, human animals that don't deserve our, uh, you know, don't, don't yet have our compassion. When we lead by example, there's, there's no words that can be more impactful than that. So I always err on the side of demonstrating instead of talking about something. Mm -hmm. Really good points. I, I know that I've had you for so long. I just have two more sh little questions, tiny que little questions <laughs> for you. Uh, I, I, uh, though I wish I could keep you on all day, but I, yeah, I have a couple other questions. One is that I'm, I'm recognizing like as 
as a as a white activist talking to you, and I, I've I've noticed this whenever I talk to a person of the global majority who I'm talking to about these issues of DEI, that something about it feels uh, like this isn't the way that the conversation should be going. Like you obviously are a managing the managing director at Encompass. This is what you do. You do trainings. You work on DEI issues, but. As a white person, I think that myself and my fellow white activists really need to be doing the heavy lifting and and stepping up and not just sort of like turning to, you know, using our white guilt or, and turning to the person of the global majority in the room and saying, what do we do? And so I recognize the irony here in the sense that like, this is what you have come to talk to us about today on faces. But like, can you just sort of weigh in on this dichotomy? And also, do you, as a part B to that question, do you take how do you take care of yourself in the process of doing this incredibly exhausting work? Hmm. Well, it might be a work in progress. You know, my answer here might be a work in progress. And maybe if you ask me next year, I'll have a different answer. Definitely caring for myself long-term is a priority. I'm not interested in being martyred uh, as a, as a story in and of itself. I, I reject that narrative that to do this work, we have to die either you know, physically or emotionally or intellectually for it. Um, life is too precious for that. I do feel a lifelong commitment to racial equity. And one of the things that I'm most grateful for is the opportunity to work on it full time with Encompass, to work on it head on. Uh, through Encompass, and I don't take that for granted. Feel incredible gratitude for Ariannish uh, bringing me on to work with her. In terms of reconciling the, you know, the the roles that we play and the responsibilities that we each have, it's it's a it can it can vary based on the context, and I think I've developed through this work and even before that, an understanding of how every conversation is a brand new opportunity. And I don't have to say yes to every opportunity, but I've chosen to say yes to, to this one, to engaging with white activists in animal protection. So as a racial equity advocate, I welcome conversations with many people of different perspectives, be it white people with racialized white life experiences, people of color in the United States, people of the global majority everywhere. The, the progress that we have the power to create, again, comes from our ability to make connections with each other and to support the work of people of the global majority. In, in the process of decentralizing whiteness from our culture, we need to engage white people and white people need to become engaged in that. This dismantling racism is a lifelong journey, a generational journey, multi-generational journey. And I don't take for granted that we have the opportunity to contribute to that. But let's be clear that even us working full steam ahead, all of us together, uh, it will take a long time to achieve 
the ideology change that ultimately will lead to a full transformation. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Totally. Okay. Last question. I promise. <laughs> Finish this sentence. The future of the farmed animal movement is. Uncertain and promising. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. All right, Michelle, I have kept you long enough. Can you please tell our viewers how they can follow your work and how they can participate in the Institute and support your efforts? Absolutely. You can find us at encompassmovement.org. Our social media handles are EncompassMVNT. And that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. When you go to our website, there is a page for the DEI Institute where you can register and we'll be in touch with you about that uh, because there will be work before the Institute for people who choose to engage in that. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and through that we let you know uh, progress on all of our programs and get input from you on how you'd like to get engaged in the process as well. I look forward to that. Yes, definitely. Definitely, definitely attend that if you're watching this. Michelle Rojas Soto, thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing at Encompass and all of the work that you are doing and have done and will do to change the world. You are a true inspiration to myself and to everybody watching this right now. Thanks for joining us today at Faces. Thank you, Faces, and thank you, Jasmine. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Our Hen House has a family of podcasts. In addition to the Our Hen House podcast, which you're listening to right now, you can also listen to the Animal Law podcast or the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear and what's not to like, please, please leave us a friendly review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us tremendously because that's how we grow. And that's how we reach more and more people with information on how to change the world for animals. Thanks for listening. Anxieties are rising. Well, we have a lot of crazy stories today. Oh, which, where should I start? Where should I start? Where should I start? This is an article from Drover's. Meat Institute advocates for meat industry in COVID-19 vaccine priority list. Yep, <laughs> they, they want uh, the federal government to step in. This is actually, I think, going to be a state issue. Who's going to get the vaccine first? And I think most everybody agrees that healthcare workers and people living in long-term care facilities should go first. I don't know whether everybody, every state is going to agree with that. But uh, what they want is the federal government to step in and say, right after healthcare workers and people in long-term care facilities should be people working in slaughterhouses. <laughs> okay. Why don't we just close the slaughterhouses? And, you know, when I laugh, I don't mean to say that the lives of these people are meaningless. I'm just saying that slaughterhouses have not been rebuilt to make or reduced capacity to make room for the fact that, that people have to be social distanced. No, they just kept going and going and going. And of course, loads of people did catch it. Loads of people died. And so they're saying that it, rather than reform their industry and reduce contact, they should just go first in the vaccine line. And that would be ahead of you guys um, and ahead of just about everybody else. 
They, their reasons are they're critical infrastructure employees. Their heroic efforts feed the nation. And they're not feeding me. Uh, and either are your lousy companies. This is my favorite. Increase health equity as the workforce is highly diverse and includes populations the CDC has also identified as greatly affected by COVID-19. Now, I am all for giving people uh, who are particularly vulnerable due to their ethnicity the advantage of having the vaccine earlier, but not because they work in slaughterhouses. I mean, these people are taken advantage of, are put at risk, and now they are presenting them as the reason that they should go first. Also, it would help rural communities because slaughterhouses are in rural communities. Well, a better way to to help rural communities is just just advantage rural communities if you want to. You don't have to advantage slaughterhouses. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Oh. Also, they, they argue that it would be very efficient because slaughterhouses are, of course, they call them meat and poultry facilities. Uh, they are ideal locations to efficiently distribute vaccines, especially those facilities with medical staff on site. What? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that we should just all go to slaughterhouses to get our vaccines. That would apparently be the best way to run this whole thing. Um, you know, and I, I think South Dakota is already planning on doing this. And I'm sure other states are where slaughter is a big industry. All right. Next, USDA awards $14.4 million in farm bill funding to protect animal health. This is also from Drovers. And I'm not going to go into it in a whole lot of detail. I just want to say that protecting animal health might be to not, you know, slit their throats that would protect their health, but that's not what they're talking about. They want to increase practical livestock biosecurity measures. And here's my favorite. They want to advance rapid depopulation and disposal abilities during high consequence animal disease outbreaks. I eat, they want to make it cheaper and faster and easier to kill them. That's their idea of protecting animal health. Oh my God. All right, I'm going through these quickly. Fake meats made from plants, cells, and humans. This is uh, the Amanda Radke Beef Daily column from Beef Magazine. Uh, (laughs) All right. She's talking about something which I actually hadn't heard about. Uh, She talks about, you know, how it's fine if people want to be not eat meat. You know, of course, they shouldn't be. They should be clearly labeled without hijacking our nomenclature. Like we shouldn't be calling them meat. That's one of their big projects to change the nomenclature, of course. And they should be designated to the vegan section of the store away from the animal products. I'm sure she would rather have them sold at, you know, out on the street, the vegan section of the store. I wish there was a vegan section of the store. But, you know, the best way to sell them is to put with them with the animal products. So she doesn't want that. But, 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 but she admits maybe that's tr- just her personal bias. And if you want to be plant-based, good for you. However, unfortunately, there are some who not only want to disrupt the meat case and introduce new innovative products, but they want to eliminate our choice to enjoy animal fats and proteins. They want cattle off the range, producers off the farm, and meat off the dinner table. Oh, yeah, that's true. So uh, they're doing all these crazy things, she says, the the lab-produced meat and all of this, but They've gone way, way too far now. In recent headlines, we see advancements in the fake meat movement here and around the world. And while companies are free to explore new pathways to success in a free market society, I simply must ring the bell, ding, on morality and ethics. 
that's hilarious when it comes to this recent development. And what she's talking about is uh, a new company. She says it's a new company called Ouroboros Steak, and it will allow customers to grow their own meat using their own cells and donated blood. Cannibalism is here. So I was like, what, what, what is this? And it turns out it's an art project that's been traveling the country. And yes, indeed, that's what they're doing. And they're doing it to, to foment discussion on the whole question of lab meat. I don't know what discussion they're trying to foment, actually, but, but that's what it is. And she's horrified. She's going to be over here praying for humanity. Okay, good. Maybe that'll keep her busy. All right, finally, from meetingplace.com. Are blended proteins on your radar this year? This is really interesting. This is the chef's table column by Michael Formicella. He's always a little on the fence. He's not really in the, in, well, he, he's, he, he is in the industry, but he comes from the cooking side. He does own some company. So, but you know, he's not like, he's not in slaughter. So his, his opinions are always a little different. And what he's talking about are these blended proteins, which seem like they would disgust both sides. Like the the people who don't want to eat animal protein would find it disgusting that it was in there. And the people who do want to eat animal protein would find it like adulterated. But, you know, then he's he's probably right because there are all those people in the middle who don't seem to think about it all at any at all. And so uh, there are these these products that are, they're coming up and he's all for it. Just thought that was a really interesting development and a sign of real desperation on the industry that. That if they can't sell their their dead bodies on their own, they're going to try to mix them with perfectly nice tempeh and other products. Of course, he puts at the end, P.S., I still love a great steak and a well-crafted burger. I mean, he does work. He is writing for a meat industry uh, rag here. So I think he always has to like (laughs) slip in that little thing that, oh, we're really not going to do this too much. Oh, boy, they're crazy out there this week, don't you think? And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation plus our Barnyard Benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year end. That's $20,000 from our Barnyard Benefactors, 20,000 from an anonymous donor and 20,000 collectively from you. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, and an invitation to our weekly Friday flock Zoom meetings for a fun and engaging conversation with me and Marianne and others in the flock, plus special guests. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I'll send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. That's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or 
wherever you listen to podcasts. Or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there. Or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House across the board. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And we do get those uh, disbursements and they help a lot. So thank you for those of you who do. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to the wonderful Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. Thanks to our graphic designer, Lori Johnston from Two Trick Pony. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands and listen to podcasts. <laughs>